Bibles, go ahead and open up to Ecclesiastes 3. Uh, if you're using one of the Bibles we provided for you, that'll be on page 554, uh, there in the Bibles that are in the rows. And uh, as you turn there, I just want to ask a quick question, it shouldn't be hard to answer. Uh, here, does anyone know what time it is? Can you give me the time, like right now? Anyone? Bam, bam, bam. It's about 11. Oh, three. Okay, good. I'm seeing the clock right there, and you're right. Thank you, Peter. Um, and kind of to give a, a bigger picture, if I were to ask you at any point during your week what time it is, my assumption would be that you would be able to, in just a few seconds, come up with the time, right? Time is such a dominant factor in our lives. And if you're, if you're anything like me, you're constantly evaluating and analyzing time. I mean, when I go to bed at night, as, as, as the night you know, is, is, is coming to a close, I'm thinking, what time do I need to go to bed? Well, when I'm about to fall asleep, I'm thinking, what time do I need to wake up? How much sleep do I need to get? How much, how much time do I need to sleep? When I wake up, I'm thinking, man, how much time do I have to get ready? Do I have time to make a pot of coffee? Do I have time to brush my... No, I'm just joking about that. Um, hopefully we're all good on that point. But the point is, I'm constantly battling the clock. Can you identify with that at all? Maybe just a little bit? I mean, how many times through your week do you look at the calendar to see what's coming up, to see the, the, the different commitments that you have on your schedule, the times and the appointments that you have to fulfill each and every single week? We're just constantly analyzing time. This should not surprise us, for after all, we live in time and space. And, and thankfully, the Bible has a lot to teach us about time. Ecclesiastes 3 is actually going to teach us a lot about time, and more specifically, the God who is sovereign over time. And so if you've been with us the past few weeks, let me just kind of recap. We've been on this journey with this guy we know as the preacher, as the book introduces him in Ecclesiastes. And he is on a journey to find meaning and satisfaction, ultimate and lasting satisfaction in life. And in the first two chapters, we've seen all kinds of pursuits that he's gone after. He's chased after wisdom and pleasure and work. All of these different pursuits, he's, he's tried to find fulfillment and, and relationship and, and power and and, and, and accomplishment, and sex, and you just kind of, you name it, fill in the blank, and he is going after that which would ultimately satisfy him, and he keeps coming to this refrain again and again and again, vanity of vanities, it's all vanity, and, and now we come to chapter 3, and he's going to reflect on more about life under the sun. That phrase, under the sun, is just his way of saying life as, as we see it and observe it and know it from, from, from one end of the earth to the next. He's going to say things like there is nothing new under the sun. So, so this morning, I pray that, that we will encounter these verses and, and we will respond by seeing God's sovereignty over time. And that will encourage us to stand in awe of his great sovereignty over time. So check, check the first verse in Ecclesiastes 3, and uh, perhaps these verses here in this early poem will be familiar to you. If for no other reason than maybe you've watched the movie for Forrest Gump and, you know, heard that song by the birds back in the 60s, turn, turn, turn. I think we'll bring a little bit more clarity, hopefully, 
to Ecclesiastes 3 then, uh, the hippie band did in the 60s. So we'll just give it our best shot. So, what does Ecclesiastes 3 teach us? Well, verse 1. For everything there is a season and a time for every matter under heaven. So if, if you write in your Bible, you can take a pen there and you can underline the word everything and season. And then you can underline the word time and every matter. That is, that is the, the, the summary of what is going to follow in this poem. But as we go on in Ecclesiastes 3, what we're going to see is that there is a God who is sovereign over all of these seasons and times in our life. And that's the first encouragement I want to give us this morning, is that we should submit to the sovereignty of God over all the seasons of our life. See, I would pose to us this morning that there is no more important knowledge that we can have in this life than our knowledge of God. Now, I hope that doesn't disappoint you who are maybe spending hours upon hours upon hours studying, you know, business and the sciences and, you know, you kind of, you name it there. I mean, those are all valuable pursuits. We need to grow in our knowledge, whatever, whatever field of study you may be in. But I would argue that there's no more important topic, no important knowledge that we can have in life than our knowledge of God. And Ecclesiastes 3 is going to highlight one characteristic, one attribute of who God is, and that is that God is absolutely sovereign. What does that mean? It means that He reigns over everything. He is in control over everything. He calls the shots over everything in the world in which we live. This is what we read about in Psalm 47, that, 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 that God sits on his throne, that he rules and reigns over all things. And this cannot be clearer in the scripture. So just to kind of ask a question, how big is the God that you know and you serve and you love? I hope he's a huge and sovereign and great God. This is what the Bible says about the sovereignty of God. Isaiah 46, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken, and I will bring it to pass. I have purpose, and I will do it. God is sovereign. How about Psalm 115, verses 2 and 3? The psalmist writes, Why should the nation say, Where is their God? Those that mock our God and would you know, denounce who He is and question His existence and His character. This is what the psalmist says. Our God is in the heavens. He does all that He Not only is God transcendent over all things, but He is even sovereign over the very details of our lives. His sovereignty is both transcendent and it's very imminent as well. Think about what Jesus says in Matthew 10. What does He say to His disciples? He says, Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your Father. But even the hairs of your head 
are all numbered. You know that? God is sovereign and, and nothing happens apart from his will. He is intimately aware of every detail of our life. And then I love Psalm 31 verses 14 in the first part of 50. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hands. My times are in your hands. All of our life is in the hand of God. He is sovereign. He rules over all things. And this should be a comfort to us. This should not cause us to resist God, but it should cause us to draw near to God. That God is a God who has the last word over everything. So if you're looking for a, a weak or a, a less than omnipotent God, as if you could find that God, don't look to the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is strong. He's omnipotent. He's authoritative. He is sovereign over all things. He's king. And that's what Ecclesiastes 3 wants to teach us, is that God is sovereign over all the seasons and times of our life. He provides this poem to make his point in verses 2 through 8. And what we're going to see here, perhaps again a familiar passage for us, probably the most familiar in the book of Ecclesiastes, but what he's going to do is he's going to give us 14 pairs of opposites, 28 ingredients in all, to make his point that, that God is sovereign, completely sovereign, over all the details of our lives. This is what he says. Let me, let me read verse 1 again. This is for context. It's for everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down, and a time to build up. A time to weep, and a time to laugh. A time to mourn, and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones, and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace, and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek, and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. And a, time, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Well, what we have here is, is the preacher providing this poem for us. To, to, to really encompass the whole life cycle. I mean, he begins in verse 2 of his poem, and he says, look, there is a time to be born and a time to die. So encompassing of the reality of all of our lives. Just visit the hospital, and you will see this reality. Lives, new life being born and given, and other lives that are expiring from you. And then we have these times and seasons all in between that he unpacks the rest of the way through the poem that address our emotions and our relationships and our possessions, our individual actions, times of great gain, times of great sorrow. It's all in there. And you say, well, help, help us kind of understand what's going on here. You know, we're not going to walk through all of these different seasons and time and kind of unpack them, but I want to summarize with just a, a few thoughts and principles. 
Uh, number one, there are seasons in life, and we normally don't get to control those times and seasons. You know, if this, this list were a list of ingredients, we would all probably be fairly well picking and choosing the ones that we would want to, you know, be a part of our life constantly, right? I mean, just, just, just look at the list. I think I'll take a little laughter. How about a little dancing? This is a Baptist church where we, we can still dance. Um, <laughs> keeping, I'll take that. Speaking, I like to talk, that's good. Um, what about love? Yeah, I'll take some love. But, but, but as sure as I'll take those ingredients to kind of mix up the, 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 the meal of my life, if you will, I think I'll pass on some other ingredients. How about passing on mourning? I'll pass on weeping. I'll pass on losing. I'll pass on, you know, a time to, to, to cast away. And we could go down through with the list. And, and so... There are seasons in life when we don't get to control the seasons. But then, number two, God is sovereign over all these times and seasons. He's sovereign over every single one of them. Nothing happens in our life apart from God permitting or sending it. Is, is God big enough for, for you to kind of accept that? You see, you see, I know some of us here may be going through a difficult time in life. You hear some good news. There are seasons that are more difficult than others, but it's just a season. I mean, sometimes we're just in it and we're going through it and we feel like this particular season is like a perpetual season. There are times in life that are just difficult. And, 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 and the question is, how are we going to respond to these difficult times? Remember, this is life under the sun. This is life in a fallen world, a messed up, jacked up world. A world that, that we have, you know, put our grubby little paws on and tainted the good world that God had made in the beginning. So Genesis 1, 2, and 3 have to be central in our minds when we're studying the book of Ecclesiastes. He's looking at life under the sun. He's saying, you know what? It doesn't all add up. It doesn't all satisfy. But even still, there is still a God who is over the sun, in charge of it all, and we can trust in Him. And thankfully, even when we're going through those difficult times, those difficult seasons, there are still those moments, and you know this. If even if you're going through a difficult time right now, there are, there are moments and times where there's still some laughter. There's still some joy. There's still some, some reason to, to give God thanks and praise. And, and how about this? Even for the Christian, right? We know that God is working in our suffering to sanctify us, to draw us closer to himself. And so these seasons are going to come, and the question is not when they're going to come, but how will we respond when they come? Will we respond, as we looked at last week, like the deceiving to please God and respond in faith? Trusting in Him, leaning on Him, depending on Him in all the seasons of our life. But there's a, another factor going on here. Not only is God sovereign over these seasons of life, but remember, this is a book of wisdom. Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature in the Bible. And I think the preacher would, would want to point out to us that we need to exercise wisdom in all these seasons of our life. You say, I don't, I don't see wisdom here. What do you mean? We'll, we'll, we'll check this out. Wisdom is taking the knowledge that we have of God, His will, His intentions for our life, and then we apply that knowledge in each particular life situation and circumstance. 
That's wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied to the glory of God. And so, so how does this come together in Ecclesiastes 3? It's this. There is a, a time to, to speak up and a time to keep our mouth shut. There's a time to love and a time to hate. And you say, what? Hate? We hate our sin and we hate suffering in the world, right? I mean, that's okay. There's a time to hate. So wisdom knows how to take the particular times and circumstances of life and live to God's glory. This is what Proverbs 26 is getting at. Think about Proverbs 26, verse 4. What does it say? This is so cool. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. So think about this. There's a, a fool at your workplace, just by chance. Sure, no one ever deals with foolish, you know, coworkers. And he says something ridiculous, right? And what are we tempted to do, right? We're tempted to kind of fire back. And what the proverb is saying is that, you know, sometimes you just need to Keep your mouth shut. Otherwise, you're going to be a fool yourself. Right? Now, what does Proverbs 26, verse 5 say? It says, Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And here, here come the skeptics. Here comes contradiction number 31 on the renowned atheist Sam Harris's list of Bible contradictions. This can't be right, right? The Bible's saying we answer full accordance. We don't answer full accordance to God. What does it mean? It's like, no, no, Sam. It's like, this is wisdom. There's a time to open our mouth. There's a time to keep our mouth shut. So wisdom helps us apply what God teaches us in the particular seasons of our life. There's a time to rejoice with those who rejoice, as Paul says. There's a time to, to weep with those who weep. There's a time to mourn over our sin, and there's a time to rejoice in the forgiveness that God gives us. There's a time to work and a time to rest. Some of us didn't learn that maybe this week from last week, but we're still trying to work. Right? So wisdom helps us apply what God has for us in these seasons, all of which over he, he is sovereign. Now, how does the preacher respond to this? In light of all these seasons and times in life, how does, how does he respond and how would he teach us to respond? Here's the second encouragement for us. We should stand in awe of God and his sovereign ways. Check verse 9. He, he asks this programmatic question again, as we found in, in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, what gain has the worker from all his toil under the sun? Remember, he's after gain. He's after that which profits. And then he goes on to say in verses 10, the first part of 11, I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Now let's pause there. This is probably one of the, one of the most beautiful verses in, in Ecclesiastes. One that we can certainly hang on to. And you say, Tanner, well, not everything's beautiful to me. This, this life isn't so beautiful sometimes. Is it, is it beautiful to God always? Well, that's not exactly what the verse is saying. It's saying that God has made everything suitable, everything appropriate in his time. Again, God stands over all things. And he is working in ways that we can't even see. So think about this. Even the most despicable acts, the most despicable moments, 
in human history. God is still sovereign. He is like still on the throne there. He hasn't like removed himself off the throne just for a few minutes and then he's back on it when things get right again. He's like always on the throne. And if you doubt that, just look to the cross. The perfect, righteous Son of God, completely innocent, guiltless, was nailed to a Roman cross at the hands of evil men. And yet God is working all things for the good. Uh And we can trust in how he is working, even when we cannot see. He's he's weaving together all of human history to work out his beautiful purposes. And just think about this. God is eternal, and he is outside of time. Uh, You kind of want your mind blown this morning? There There you go. Think about that. Explain that. Wrap your mind around that. He's infinite and he's eternal. It's as if we... Have you ever been to a parade? I can remember when I was little going to a couple of parades. And of course the the great thing about parades for kids is, you know, we don't really care about the floats that are going by and how hard people work to build these floats, you know, to put them together. We really care about the candy, you know, that they're throwing off a little bag and hopefully in our favorite or not so favorite pieces of candy to trade later with our friends. And so, so if, if, if life, if human history is like a parade, then we are standing on the sidewalk and we see one float going by at a time and another float going by at a time. And God's vantage point is not the sidewalk here. God has like the picture blunt view of it all. He sees the beginning of the parade from the end of the parade and he is sovereign over everything. He is working on his purposes to make it beautiful. God is not myopic. He does not suffer from being nearsighted. He is eternal. He is infinite. And we can rest in his plan to make everything suitable in his time. But then added to that, not only is God eternal, but it says in verse 11, this is, this is such a cool and serious verse, he says that, it says that he has made everything beautiful in his time, also he has put eternity into man's heart. So, so think about this, we have a sense of, 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 of something that, that, that's behind us and something that is to come. We, we have this, this sense, this compass that God puts within our hearts to know that there is something more than this life. I find this a persuasive argument for the existence of God. That, that, that all of humanity, we, we know, we have this innate sense, I think even if we suppress it, that there has to be something more. There has to be more than, than, than what we find in life under the sun. I like to ask people, do you, do you think that this world is as good as it gets? Really? And if they would kind of come back, oh yeah, sure, you know, this stuff is great. I think, I think deep down they wish that there was better. And the resurrection of Jesus tells us it is better. And he will one day usher in this hope that we all long for, this new heavens and new earth, for us to spend eternity with him, for those who have faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And so he's placed eternity in our hearts and yet the preacher still is wrestling here because he goes on to say in verse 11, he says, and yet we cannot understand and find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. So again, we don't have the capacity to understand the big picture. God sees it all and we see bits and pieces 
of it all. And yet we long for something more. We know that there's something more. And then he, he goes on in verses 12 and 13, and he says, well, okay, so, so if, if we only get bits and pieces and we can't figure out the whole picture, then what are we to do? And this sounds a lot like the sermon ended last week. It's, it's another passage that says, hey, enjoy life today. Look at, look at what he says. He says in verse 12, I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. So what he's saying here is that in light of our uh, ability to, to, or lack thereof, our lack of ability to understand God in all of his ways, we should enjoy each day as a gift. We should enjoy today. The, the, the everyday actions of like eating and drinking and working, we should enjoy today. And why is this so important? Well, you know this is true. We, we, we get so caught up in living in the past, right? We're so prone to that. Man, what happened last week, what that person said to us last month, how you know we blew that opportunity last year, and we just kind of get stuck there. And then on the flip side of that, there's the other possibility that it's like, man, I can't wait for you know that next transition to come. I can't wait to graduate and get out of high school or college. I can't wait to you know be married. I can't wait to have that new job. And we're just living forward in the future. So much so that we miss today. We don't enjoy today. Listen to what Blaise Pascal said French philosopher. He says this, many of us live in the past, reflecting on a season that we have already been through, either regretting the things that we should have done, reminiscing about the things we shouldn't have done, or we live in the future, planning and anticipating and expecting that someday things will be good and I will be happy and I will have a good and what the preacher is saying, he's saying, enjoy today. Live in the precious present. It's, it's not that we shouldn't reflect, it's not that we shouldn't plan, but, but don't do so in such a way that we miss what's happening now. I mean, think about this. We only get one shot, right? We only get sh one shot at 6, 26, 36, 76, 46, you name it. Only one shot. All of us in this room, we only get one shot at February 19, 2012, today. It's our only shot. Bigger picture, we only get one shot at this one. Just one. Are we going to live it in such a way that we enjoy life? And, and what does he say? He says, we be joyful. We enjoy the times God gives, and then we do good. We use the times that God gives wisely. That's wisdom. So, so in light of that, let me, let me ask you just kind of practically here. How do you manage your time? Do you seek to maximize your time in a way that it will really count? In a way that it will not just kind of count for freedom today, but, but that in God's perspective will, will matter for eternity? There was a, a preacher, pastor here in, in New England, perhaps some of you have heard of him, one of the greatest philosophers and theologians in, in, our, in the history of, of, of North America, not a country yet, but, but 1723, there was a man named Jonathan Edwards, he pastored in Northampton here in Massachusetts. And, and he wrote these resolutions, okay? 
There was about 70 of them, and he penned them, not when he was like at the end of his life, when he was like 50 or, or whatever, but he, he penned them when he was about 20 years old. Pretty stunning. Look at what he said about resolving to use his time for God's glory. Here's resolution number five. Resolve never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Resolution seven. Resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolution 17. Resolve that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I come to die. 52. He says, I frequently hear persons in old age saying how they would live if they were to live their lives over again. Resolve that I will live just so as I can. Think I shall wish I had done. Supposing that I live to an old age. So in the days that God gives, let's maximize our time. Let's use it to, to, the, to, the, to the maximum in such a way that would profit not only us and those around us, but most certainly and most supremely to God's glory. What a great example we have in Jonathan Edwards. Now, verse 14. Maybe the, the key verse in this whole chapter. What, is it, what does it say? It says this. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nothing taken away from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. So, so, so think about this. He's saying here that everything that God has done, referring to, 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 to everything that has taken place here in, in Ecclesiastes 3, everything in life, he's saying God's ways, he is eternal, his ways are eternal, and, and as, we, as we look at that and understand it, he is doing it for a particular purpose. What is the purpose? Is that we would fear God. See, does it sound very appealing, Tanner? Like, is this like, a, is like the Bible, a horror movie? We're supposed to be scared of God, afraid of God? What does that mean? I mean, we should be afraid of God. It means that we should respect God. We should revere God. A simple definition of the fear of God is a reverential awe before God. That we would stand in awe of God and we say, God, you are infinite and I am finite. You are, are, are unchanging and I'm constantly changing. You are self-sufficient. You have no needs. I have constant needs. God, you're holy. I'm not. You're perfectly loving. I am not. And, and that our knowledge of God and who He is and His mysterious sovereign ways in the world, that they would draw us to know Him and to worship Him. That's the point of it all. That we would stand in awe of who God is. I mean, when you come into worship, is this your mindset? Not just, hey, we're going to show up on Sunday, you know, roughly 1030, we're going to sing a few songs, we're going to hear a sermon, and that's that. We have done our duty for the Lord. is it, man, I want to know God. I love God. I revere God. I want to worship God. He is so awesome and incredible. He deserves everything that I am. What about just His ways in life? Do you, do you stand in all of His blessings? Do you, do you respond in gratitude? Do you giving? God is working in your life? 
It's just down to the details. What does Acts 17, 26 say? It says that, 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 that even the, the time and the boundaries of our dwelling, God is sovereign over those, and he has, he has placed us in particular uh, places and times so that we would feel our way to him, that we would seek him and find him, though he's not far from any of us. Everything that God does, he is, he is wanting us to know him, to seek after him, to find him, even in our suffering. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says about this. It is an awesome quote. He says, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. Everything that God does, He is seeking to, to grab, to seize our attention in hopes that we would draw near to Him. His sovereign ways are meant to drive us to Him in this reverential awe not to be driven away. And then this, this paragraph ends in verse 15. So that which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away or what has been pursued. So, so in other words, we can, we can learn from the past, we can learn from those who have gone before us, and, and God has, has sought all of this out. He is over it all. So, so, so then we, we move on to verses 16 through 22, and we have, we have one more lesson to learn about. Here it is. We should know that God has set a time for judgment. Verse 16, he, he shifts his attention to the issue of justice. Well, look at what he says. He, he says, I perceive that, that uh, no, that's 14, let me hit that again. 16, moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. So, so we know and we see so many forms of injustice in our world, right? And for those of us that are a little bit older, I think this is an area that we can really learn from our college students because college students sometimes see the world a little bit better than we are for whatever reason. And, and, and you know, a lot of our college students really love about them. They're, they're always kind of sit back and recline and, and, and just be content with the fact that you know there are millions of people in our world that are starving literally to death. There are so many people, millions and millions of people, they don't have safe drinking water. There are so many children, young girls, sold into sex slavery every single year. And they're not just really going to sit on their hands and not do anything about it. And we certainly want to do engage in deeds of mercy and, and, and seek social justice as the people of God. We of all people should be on the front lines of those types of efforts. And, and what, what gets the preacher here is, is not just those forms of injustice, but, but the predicament in verse 16 is that there is injustice where there should be justice. In the seat of justice, the scales are not balanced here. We can just look to the kind of high-profile court cases over the last 20 years in the United States, and we can see how so many times the guilty go free. Or the guilty get a little slap on the wrist. Injustice is not served. That's the bad news. Here's, here's the good news. Verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, but there is a time for every matter and for everyone. 
So God is, is still sovereign over all of the injustice. And you know what? One day he will bring every injustice to justice. That's good news. The Bible is crystal clear. Every person, every deed will be exposed in the sight of God and will be judged. And he will judge with perfect righteousness and justice. So, how does he finish the chapter? Well, remember, he's the preacher who's doing life under the sun. And he's saying, look, this is still, this whole deal, life apart from the pursuit of knowing God and fearing God. Remember, we have to understand Ecclesiastes in light of chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, right? The conclusion of it all. Fear God and keep his commandments, the whole duty of man. So, so remember, he is still wrestling and struggling with life under the sun. And this is how he finishes the chapter. He says this, in light of the injustice in the world, he says, I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. But what happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast, is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to what to see what will be after him? So just a couple thoughts here. Number one, that the preacher is not making a blanket comparison between humanity and and, and animals. Okay. So 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 you know he was he was uh, the king in Israel, and he understands that humanity is made in the image of God. All right. In short, we have a capacity for race rationality, relationality, creativity, that, you know, like your pet ferret or your, you know, emu or, or yak or whatever, you know, you name it, like they just don't have that same capacity because they're not made in the image of God. Alright? But he is saying that we all will meet the same fate. We all will die one day. And we encouraged last week for us to kind of meditate on our mortality. That's really good for us. This is the kind of the problem for the preacher. Is he's saying, you know what? No matter what happens in life, we're all going to die one day. And, and, and from the vantage point of life under the sun, this is really what makes it a vain, vain world that we live. It's only understanding life with God in view that we can make sense of it all and find our ultimate satisfaction in life. So to conclude, let me, let me just ask you, how are you handling the times in your life? Is it, is it a time that's, that's really going well? Is, is it a time of joy for you? Are you, are you turning to God and gratitude and, and thanks for His grace and His provision in your life? Is it, is, it a, is it a time of great suffering? Are you, are you turning to God in dependence and faith, recognizing that, that He is still present with you, that He will sustain you through these difficult times and seasons of life? Perhaps it's a time where you're wrestling with eternity. And you're saying, man, I, I, I can kind of see the validity here. I'm made for something more. And what, what God is, is doing is he's kind of chasing you down. He's saying, well, look to me and love. 
see Christ and, and live. Look to the cross and know that you can kind of set your eternal course like right now through seeing Christ and what He's done. Because here's the reality for us all. We, we, we in life under the sun all have this sin in our life that separates us from God. And God is not content to leave us in our sin and death, but He graciously sends Christ so that through His death, through Him taking on our sin, absorbing the wrath of God in our place, we can look to Him and receive the gift of grace and life that only He can give. So as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2, Behold, now is the favorable, favorable time, now is the day of salvation. In other words, Paul's saying, what better time, time than like now, now, to not only live well in these times under the sun, but to make sure that we will live with God forever, one day in eternity. We can get that all straightened up because of so my encouragement to us this morning is that we would recognize God's sovereignty over all the times of our life and that it would push us and drive us to stand in awe of Him, to know Him, to love Him, to pursue Him, to worship Him with our lives. Let's pray. Father, thank You for this morning and for the privilege of opening Your Word. God, we ask that you would draw us near to yourself, that, that no matter what the time is, no matter what the season is, Lord, that we would look to you and love. God, let me just pray for those that are hurting, for those that are going through a difficult time, a, a heavy trial in life, Lord, help, help them to find comfort in the cross, that your spirit would, would, would bring peace to their hearts, to know that you are still God over us. Lord, for those that are, that are going through a, uh, a more pleasant time in life, Lord, let them look to you just the same. Not becoming self-sufficient, but exercising faith all along the way. God, help us to be a church that fears you and loves you and worships you with everything we are. In Jesus' name.